Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton. Along with me on this journey, revisiting 80s movies, is my co-host, Jason Masick. Hello, Jason. Now clear your minds. It knows what scares you. It has from the very beginning. Don't give it any help. It knows too much already. Now, open the door. Hello, listeners. It's October, so we have the most unoriginal idea to discuss all horror movies this month. It's our second annual Splatter Cinema Month. Our third movie we'll be discussing with spoilers aplenty is 1982's Poltergeist, starring Craig T. Nelson, Joe Beth Williams, and Heather O'Rourke. Directed by Toby Hooper, this movie is rated PG with a running time of 1 hour and 54 minutes. Poltergeist was nominated for three Oscars, Best Effects, Visual Effects, Best Effects, Sound Effects, Editing, and Best Music Original Score by Jerry Goldsmith. Poltergeist is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. Everyone is saying it. Poltergeist is one of the most thrilling films ever made. Fascinating, frightening, as suspenseful as they come, this is high-voltage, jolt-a-minute filmmaking at its compelling best. Producer Steven Spielberg here presents the best in modern cinema, director Toby Hooper's extraordinary ultra-fantastic excursion into the supernatural. Thanks to the special effects wizardry of George Lucas's industrial light and magic, Poltergeist delivers a non-stop spectacle of visual effects you simply have to see to believe. It's pure magic and incredible fun. Life is very pleasant for a California family until a host of otherworldly forces invade their peaceful suburban home. It starts with just an odd occurrence or two, but soon their house is turned into a swirling supernatural sideshow. The forces at work are anything but friendly. And if the luckless family doesn't soon clear out, they'll all be swept off into nightmarish chaos. Astounding. Completely absorbing. Poltergeist is a work of art full of spine-snapping chills, says Time magazine. From a dimension beyond the living, a terror to scare you to death. They're here. Poltergeist. Yes, we definitely could not go through this episode without saying they're here at least one time. So I'm glad we knocked it out, got it out early. That will be the first of many times. <laughs> We're yes. probably going to say it. Happy 40th birthday to Poltergeist. My goodness. Yes, happy birthday. Uh, so that was what's on the box. Jason, how are we doing? Oh, we're doing great, buddy. I can't wait to dive into this one. This movie is incredible. It's awesome. What a classic. I'm excited. Let's talk about Poltergeist from 1982. Let's start off with some earliest memories then. Jason, as always, start us off. Absolutely. I did not see this film in the theater. I was only eight years old, and even if I was old enough to handle it, I wouldn't have wanted to see it. As I've said, I'm a self-admitted scaredy cat. I was the kid that would walk into a haunted maze and turn around and go back out the front exit, which I actually did, Bill Bant, once when my grandma took me to a haunted maze at a fair. Yeah, just turned around and said, nope, I'm done. Regardless, I finally saw this film years later on cable and was disturbed. 
This is one of those iconic films that the kids on the playground talked about all the time. And that's how it was for us back then. Yeah, sure, we'd get our movie news from the newspaper reviews. And there, of course, was Siskel and Ebert and a few others. But you couldn't escape those damn kids running around saying they're here. And that's it. The number one memory for me is always that quote. And it coincides with the image right off the VHS box. That is the memorable Iconic image of Carol Ann sitting in front of the television with the static fuzz, the snow, and touching the screen, making contact with the poltergeist, or poltergeists, plural, and saying they're here. That's it. It's brilliant. It's about the atmosphere that that image just creates alone. The mood, the sound design, the lighting, the glow of the screen on her face. It's the thought of being a kid and... When the television programming used to go off the air, the star-spangled banner would play, the colored bars would appear with the ringing noise, and then often, yes, the static snow. It was inherently creepy. It signified that something was disconnected, the comfort was gone, the image itself is like this chaos amidst nothingness, nothingness amidst chaos. It means something's wrong, you don't have a signal, or the cable is out, or you got to fix the antenna. The fun's over, basically, and you got to go to bed. That's what it means, and that sucks. But it means you're going into the depths of the night and into the darkness. And I still don't like it when the TV is on the fritz showing the fuzz. Sparks kind of a visceral response to this day, which is funny. So how brilliant is it to use that and to have the idea that the television static would be a portal for spirits from the supernatural dimension to enter the real world? Uh, Another early memory, Bill Bant. If I'm really honest, this is actually my first real early memory clowns damn this movie i had to mention carol ann first in the there here quote but (sighs) the stuffed clown toy that robbie has carol ann's older brother only by a few years he's got the clown on the chair the clown disappears the cloud under the bed extending uh, this cloud's not on the bed anyway spoiler alert stretchy arms strangling. I'm done. I'm out. I hate clowns already. I hated clowns then. I hate them now. When I saw that scene as a kid in this movie, I was scarred for life. Thank you very much, Poltergeist. Thanks. Thanks for nothing. And of course, another early memory being that Robbie was almost swallowed by a tree outside of his window. That was especially horrific as well as a child. What in the holy hell? Now, I do remember this much. Once I got settled into this film, as much as one could get settled in, or I accepted the conceit of the film, that there was this fantastical element, it was pretty cool. And the effects were great. Uh, Another early memory would be that, well, I mean, I couldn't sing you the theme song right now, but the music score by Jerry Goldsmith is most effective in this. It's outstanding. Bill Bant, I haven't seen this film in a long time, and although I don't have many memories of when I first saw it, where I was, or who I was with, so much of the imagery has stayed with me. And honestly, Joe Beth Williams crossing over to the other side, go to the light, as she says to Carol Ann. And for me, the iconic shot of Craig T. Nelson shoving the TV out of the hotel room and onto the walkway, such a fantastic ending. Those are some of just some of the images, some of the early memories for me, Bill Bant. How about yourself? Okay, so the first time I watched this movie was certainly with my parents on HBO. And I think it was probably the first horror movie that really got me hooked into horror films. Because I know other attempts before that 
I was just too afraid and couldn't get through them or would run out of the room or they would give me nightmares. But this one was one of those after it was over, I needed to see it again. But I'll have to admit there is one scene. Um, it took me a long time to finally watch it was the Marty ripping off his face scene. I remember when that happened the first time I ran out of the room. So I have no idea what happened. And then anytime that scene would come on again. And as soon as I saw that drop of blood hit the sink, I was out of the room again. So it, it must've been about 15 times before I finally sat and actually watched it. And I was brave enough to watch it. And then of course that became the slow-mo and go frame by frame just to check it out. And even watching it now, I just have a laugh at it. It's like, oh, I can't believe I was so afraid of this scene. It is still kind of repulsive in a way. And I'm sure if I showed that to my kids, they would be a little bit terrifying of it. But that was the one scene that really stuck out to me watching it the first time. The rest of it, I could sit and watch. Like you, the music I just loved, especially at the end when they had the kids singing, like the choir. That was so creepy, but it was so cool. Um, you mentioned that at the very end with the TV being pushed out of the motel. And I remember my parents laughing at that. Yeah, the tree scene was always so bizarre that a tree would come in and try to eat a kid. Yeah, the clown. Yeah, I have to agree with that one, too. I wasn't as creeped out by the clown, but I never understood why they still had the clown. Like, I remember when I would go over to my grandparents' house and my uncle was still living there. And um, he used to have this skull in the bedroom that would glow in the dark. And if I slept over, that skull had to be removed in order for me to sleep in the room. So that was one of the things they had to do. It's like the same thing with the clown. I'm like, why is this clown still in this room? That was always just strange to me. But I think what attracted me to the film is it just seemed like a regular family, just like me, I had a brother and sister, but just weird stuff was going on. And granted, I didn't understand everything. Like I got the general gist of it. And even watching it now, I still was a little unsure because I think I was thinking of the sequel because they kept saying this whole thing about the beast. I didn't understand what the beast was because I, I always think now it's just the Reverend King who we find in episodes two and three. But I just understood the whole thing of, I guess, growing up Catholic and the whole thing of when you die, you go into the light and you pass over to heaven. Or if you're a bad person, you go to hell. So those elements, I understood watching it. But the whole, why are these people crossing over? Or why are they not crossing over? What is holding them back? That was the stuff that was still a little confusing to me when I first watched. But overall, enjoyable film and uh, definitely great revisit and watch and really looking forward to getting into a little bit more about the movie. Excellent, man. That's uh, I love it. I, I always enjoy your earliest memories because sometimes it jogs my memory or I just find your memories entertaining. Regardless, I'm glad you brought up the family itself because Spielberg, whose fingerprints are all over this film, it is directed by the great Toby Hooper, but that perfect suburban small town family unit is just captured so well the essence of that middle america kind of feeling it's just it's part of spielberg's signature really and uh 
then, you know, especially when you're introduced to this family in the beginning of the film and you get a feel for the atmosphere, the environment, the neighborhood itself, the uh, Cuesta Verde neighborhood, you know, it just lulls you into this false sense of comfort. And then you realize that all these things that happen and the terror that falls upon this family. I mean, it feels like, okay, well, crap, if it happened to them, it could happen to anyone. Yeah, it's it's great. So... Yeah, I, I mean, I'm ready to get into some of my initial thoughts, speaking of. Yeah, go for it. Let's talk about initial thoughts. What are our initial thoughts about poltergeist? Well, let's define what a poltergeist is. Here's the definition. A poltergeist is a ghost or other supernatural being supposedly responsible for physical disturbances such as loud noises and objects thrown around. The word poltergeist translates literally from German as knocking spirit or noisy ghost. There you have it. And let's start with some of our main players from Poltergeist. This film stars Craig T. Nelson, the great Craig T. Nelson, who portrays the the father figure in this uh, family dynamic, the patriarch Steve Freeling is the character's name. In 1980, Craig T. Nelson was in Private Benjamin and also Stir Crazy, which we covered on this very podcast. Then he does this, Poltergeist, in 1982. He goes on to do all the right moves, Silkwood, Poltergeist 2, Action Jackson. Then from 89 to 97, he does 199 episodes of the television series Coach. Heck yeah. I love that show, man. I don't. Did you watch Coach, Bill Bant? I watched like the first three seasons. Yes, Craig T. Nelson played the titular role. Coach Hayden Fox. Yeah, I did love that show. 199 episodes. I'm always now wondering, why not 200 episodes? They couldn't knock one more out. It's a nice, even 200. Anyway, uh, Craig T. Nelson went on to be in The Devil's Advocate in 1997. And of course, he is the voice of Bob Parr, a.k.a. Mr. Incredible from The Incredibles, which came out in 2004. He was in Incredibles 2 and then all other Incredibles projects. Uh, he was also in Blades of Glory. Craig T. Nelson still with us, still working today, 78 years old and going strong. We also have Joe Beth Williams starring in this film as the mother, Diane Freeling. Joe Beth Williams, beautiful in this movie. Uh, she was in Kramer vs. Kramer back in 79, but moving into the 80s, she was also in Stir Crazy alongside Craig T. Nelson. She played the role of Karen in The Big Chill, an all-timer. Uh, she played a nurse in the TV movie The Day After. You remember that one? That TV movie? That scared the hell out of everybody in 1983. She was also in Poltergeist 2, of course. Uh, Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. She was in Wyatt Earp in 1994. Joe Beth Williams did a ton of TV movies and had a bunch of recurring spots on television series. Just look her up. She's also still with us and still working at 73 years old. Then, of course, I, I guess we probably should mention Steven Spielberg. Oh, yeah. He gets story by and screenplay by credits and also produced by. Yeah. A common mistake for myself and uh, many others was to think that this film was directed by Spielberg. I often made that mistake when I was much, much younger. Uh, yes, he's given those other major credits, but we do know now, of course, that Toby Hooper directed this film. And I had mentioned earlier that Spielberg does have his fingerprints all over it. However, let's just real quick, let's talk about who is Toby Hooper. And by the way, I'm just going to call him Tobe from now on, because that's how it's spelled. The Tobe? Tobe. So Toby Hooper, probably actually most well known for directing the all-time horror classic 
from 1974, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I know you're a big fan of, right? Huge. Love that movie. Absolutely. And just to name a few of his other credits, in 1979, he does the two-part miniseries of Salem's Lot. In 1982, he does this, Poltergeist. In 1985, he directed Life Force. In 86, he directs Invaders from Mars and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. And, you know, I almost feel like I should give him some sort of credit for sort of being in summer school in 1987. Yeah. Because of Dave and Chainsaw. They're just such huge fans of Toby Hooper and the original Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, just wanted to give him a shout out. Uh, Rest in peace. Toby Hooper passed in 2017 at the age of 74. Just to mention some other heavy hitters, man. This movie is, again, it's a classic. It's loaded. We've got Richard Edlund, who's the special effects. He's actually credited for the special effects supervision on this film. You might know Richard Edlund from a few small films that he worked on known as the classic Star Wars trilogy. Yeah. The special effects of this film were created by Industrial Light and Magic. Jerry Goldsmith does the score. Michael Kahn. That's Spielberg's guy, his editor. Yeah, he edits this movie. Want to give a quick shout out to my guy, Richard L. Anderson. He worked in the sound department, also worked on Raiders of the Lost Ark, and he's an Academy Award winner for having worked in the sound department. And he was a regular of mine at the Black Cow Cafe. That's right, Richard L. Anderson. What's up, man? Hey, here's some other initial thoughts. I seem to recall this movie, yes, often being on cable. Bill, you'd mentioned it was on HBO. As far as my recollection, I saw Poltergeist 2 much more on HBO. It's like Poltergeist 2 seemed to be on repeat forever. I saw that movie a lot more than the original. But here it is, the original, the first Poltergeist on HBO Max today. It's still on HBO, just like the good old days. Kind of cool. So the question here is, was this paranormal activity before paranormal activity? Was this like the first... Big paranormal, not, it wasn't really, but it was for me, it was kind of my first experience with the paranormal cinematically. That's what I probably should have put that in one of my earliest memories, but really that's what I was thinking of when I was watching it today. And this is definitely a horror film, but it's kind of in that horror subgenre of paranormal thriller or supernatural horror. Now you watch this movie, I'm watching this movie today and it's quite obvious that You can make all kinds of comparisons, comps to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. There are some Raiders of Lost Ark comparisons you can make, as well as E.T. and Jaws. Uh, Like I said, Spielberg, his fingerprints all over it. It's the lights from the sky. It's the ominous clouds moving in. It's the children's toys going haywire. It's the little kid being abducted. And in fact, Carol Ann, played by the great Heather O'Rourke, She looks like she could be the twin sister of the little boy, Barry, from Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I totally agree. I mean, completely. Then you compare it to Raiders of the Lost Ark, you get the skeletons falling on top of Diane at the end, like just like Marion and Raiders. The electric sparks flying and the apparitions soaring about, just like the end of Raiders. There is a subtle nod to Jaws when Jo Beth Williams tells her daughter, Carol Ann, if she overfeeds the goldfish, they'll grow up to be sharks. And then, of course, you got to love all the Star Wars toys in the kids' room. Yeah, just like in E.T. with Elliot. Oh, man, the Hoth playset, the white TIE fighter, the posters, the blanket, Han Solo in the Hoth gear. There's FX-1 in the background. Darth Vader action figure carrying case. Hell yeah, had it. Han's blaster making that, like, whiny noise when you press the trigger. That just talk about nostalgia just washing over me in that moment. And I love, love, love that Carol Ann is chewing on Luke Skywalker near the end. Really funny. 
I thought that Joe Beth Williams and Craig T. Nelson were great as a couple in this film. I thought they had great chemistry. And Bill Bant, this is a funny initial thought. I had things very backwards. Spoiler alert. After Tangina, the clairvoyant, shows up and helps the Freelings get Carol Ann back from the poltergeist, I thought the movie was over. (laughs) This is how I remembered it. Steve and Diane are boxing up the family stuff. They're moving out. The moving van is being packed. And I look at the time. I'm like, wait, there's 18 minutes left in the movie. So there's all this stuff at the end of the movie that I thought had happened earlier in the movie. That's how I remembered it. And then I was watching it today going, oh, I had it all switched around in my head. Regardless, watching this movie today as an adult, it's just great. It's really fun. Definitely creepy. I thought I could have used a bit more subtlety in the beginning. And I would have cut down some of the scenes with the paranormal scientists and had more with Tangina, the clairvoyant, who's played by the great Zelda Rubenstein. So fun to watch. I think Joe Beth Williams is a standout watching it today. Really, she's really selling being the mother who's so scared and terrified for her children. The haunting theme by Jerry Goldsmith is iconic. And I'd say about 75 to 80% of the special effects completely hold up. It's still got some great scares. Totally entertaining. It's awesome. What are your initial thoughts of Poltergeist? Man, you had a lot there on the plate. Before I get into my initial thoughts, I want to get into the Toby Hooper, Steven Spielberg debate because there is so much out there that says Spielberg basically did direct this film. And you kind of said, if you watch this film and you had no idea who directed it and you said, who who do you think directed this movie? You would probably say Spielberg. Sure. Because he does certainly have his fingers all over it. So I did a lot of research just to figure out what the hell was going on. And this is my conclusion. So this is what I think. It sounds like, yes, Spielberg was on set every day. But I think he was taking care more of the technical aspects. And Toby was doing the actual directing, if that makes sense. He was taking care of the actors while Spielberg was kind of setting up the shots. So it seems like it was very collaborative And I know there was some stuff that kind of came out that Spielberg made it sound like he was kind of directing and then he retracted some of it and he apologized about it. But it sounds like everything I heard that Spielberg was there on set every day. Toby Hooper was on set every day. And then once filming stopped, Spielberg basically took over from that point, too. He had his hands in the editing and cutting and all that. Yeah, he took over post-production, according to the research. Yeah. So I would say Hooper does deserve that credit. I mean, if you look at his other movies, they're certainly not the same. It's definitely done in Spielberg's style, but I would say it was a collaborative effort because it, it sounds more that they were butting heads the whole time, but it didn't really seem that way. It was more of, this is how it should look, and then Hooper would work with the actors and say, okay, this is what we're going to do, and this is what I need from you. So that's my take on it. I don't know if I'm right, but everything that I looked up, that's what I kind of inferred after I was it was all said and done they compared it to what Lucas did with Empire and Jedi yes there Mm -hmm. was two other people directing but of course Lucas had his fingers all over it because he knows everything that in his head that he wants but the director would have to make sure he could convey that vision and I think that's what Spielberg wanted with Hooper is like I know what I want so I just need you to do it this way all right so moving on my initial thoughts I thought it was really cool in the beginning of the movie. We have the dog, E-Buzz, basically introduces us to the Freeling family. So we see Stephen Freeling, played by Craig T. Nelson, and he's running the TV. And like you mentioned, too, they're playing off the set. 
and he falls asleep and the dog comes in and steals some food. And then he goes upstairs and goes from room to room and you meet each character. So I thought that was kind of interesting. I was like, all right, that's a neat way to introduce the family. It's something I haven't seen before. I love the Poltergeist font and what they did with the title credits because I'd never seen anything like that before. The black with the white outline. I was like, oh, that's really cool and ominous. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know when I introduced the film, I said Craig D. Nelson first, but I noticed that Joe Beth Williams actually had first credit in the movie. And I was like, oh, okay. Ah, there you go. Yeah. I couldn't believe how young the kids looked in this movie. Like I, I knew Carol Ann was five or, or six going into it, but I always thought Robbie was older. I thought maybe he was mm-hmm. like 10 or 11. Yeah, me too. It seems like more he was seven or eight. And yeah, I got to give it to the kids. They did their roles pretty well. And that's what's going to help sell the movie is that the kids are believable. So I give them all this credit to that. You know, as I was saying earlier with earliest memories, the story. So watching this time when the movie was over, I'm still trying to figure out what this beast is. I still don't get the beast. Like where did the beast come from? So that was confusing me because you see the spirits and ghosts, but then there's that giant dog creature at some point in front of the door. And I didn't realize like that's what's been running the show the whole time. I thought mm-hmm. it was just the people that were buried underneath the house or in the area. Right. I don't know. I need to know the mythos of the beast because I, I don't know of any kind of beast creature in any kind of religion or anything like that. So that was kind of odd yet interesting to me. I can't believe the movie's almost two hours long. It doesn't feel two hours long, which is always Not a at great all. sign. Not at all. It's amazing. I know you said you wanted less of the paranormal people, but more of you wanted more Tangina. I actually wanted a little more of the paranormal people. Not Marty, though. Marty was a mess. <laughs> he had some trubs. Poor guy. He got picked on big time. Oh, he got beat up. When, uh, when Dr. Leash is like, yeah, Marty's not coming back. I'm like, I don't blame him. I wouldn't be coming back either. But uh, yeah, I definitely like the Ryan character. I, I kind of wish they gave him a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, I never had heard of a, what a poltergeist was going into this movie. And I'm sure if I asked my kids, like if I asked my kids, you know, have you ever heard of ghosts? They would say, yeah. But if I said poltergeist, I'd go, huh? What? What's a poltergeist? So that was just kind of interesting, kind of learning about that kind of stuff. And I do remember as a kid, I think after I saw this movie, when they do those like scholastic book drives at your school every year. And I remember getting a book about ghosts and it's supposed, it was supposed to have like real pictures of ghosts in there and it'd be one of those books i'd have to read with all the lights on because some of the pictures of that book were really creepy i was actually trying to find the title of that book the other day and i couldn't find it yeah i mean it kind of made me fascinated to find out more about ghosts and even sure even watching it now it's still unknown and what sucks is there's so much stuff out there that's so fake that pretends to be real that i really just like to know what is actually real I thought the exact same thing. The exact same thing. It totally piques your curiosity. And then I'm thinking about all the Ghost Hunter shows going, ah, but how much validity is there to those? I want mm-hmm. to. I want the nitty gritty. Yeah, I want to really know what is going on. Because, I mean, we don't know. We, we just don't know. We don't know what happens and we're never going to know. So I think that mystery is always kind of cool, but it's been exploited. But when you're a kid, and this is really the, your first taste of this kind of stuff, you really just eat it up and just like, whoa, there's ghosts and there's dead people that actually don't 
die and they don't know that they're dead and that was creepy and cool. This is probably my most watched horror movie, especially of the 80s. Mm-hmm. And it's been a while since I've seen it, but uh, it still works. It still works. It's still a lot of fun. I wish my kids weren't such wimps that I could actually watch them with them. Maybe when they're in their 20s, I can finally sit down and watch it. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, look forward to that day. Yes. You know, a couple of things. One, I totally agree with you. I, upon this watch today, needed a bit more story clarification from the film. Totally agree with you. Uh, regard, like you were speaking of the beast and its origin and the mythos and a bit more of the lore which always fascinates me. I could have used a bit more. I have that a little bit later in another segment that we might delve into. So totally agree there. And speaking of clarification, I need to clarify my earlier point because I misspoke. And I said I could have used less of the paranormal scientists and more of Tangina. What I meant to say was I actually would have, and again, I'll delve into this a bit further later on, but I would have wanted the paranormal scientists to stick around throughout and have Tangina been there from the beginning. I will just throw it out there right now. This may be my, my hot take, is that I would have taken Dr. Lesh and just replaced her with Tangina. I would have had Dr. Lesh be Tangina from the get and keep oh, okay. them throughout. I like that take. Because I love Tangina, and I think she ties in with the paranormal scientists well. So just pair them up. Have them be the team. I thought the actress who portrayed Dr. Lesh, and I'll give her a shout out right now, Beatrice Strait. Yes, Beatrice Strait. She's wonderful. She's great. She exudes such warmth and she real care for what's happening to this poor family within this house. And she wants to get to the bottom of it. But I didn't find her character absolutely necessary. I The Tangina character and, of course, that performance by Zelda Rubenstein, she's just she has such a presence, and I just want to know more about her. She's such a character that I've just completely invested her in her and her kind of strange delivery and performance. I wanted to see her the whole time. Make her the leader of the para-scientists. Again, hot take. Anyway, great initial thoughts, Bill Bant, and I just wanted to clarify that point because I did really like the paranormal scientists being in this movie. I think it's actually really important. Yeah, I think I would agree with you on the fact that I really do like Beatrice Strait in this film because she is very caring and she really wants to help this family and she really feels for them. Mm -hmm. Very empathetic. But, yeah. Yes. If she wasn't in the movie, it would be okay. I like that she's in it, but yeah, you could take her out and I'm like, okay, it still works. And just watching Tangina in that role the whole time, trying to get to the bottom of things, just as Dr. Lesh was trying to do so, but Tangina seems to be, she's a clairvoyant, so she has a much more deeper connection to the spirit world itself. And seeing her kind of deduce the different ways and strategies in order to infiltrate that world and communicate with the spirits. And some maybe some things work, some things don't. And then to work in tandem with the scientists in that pursuit would be really cool to watch throughout the movie. To get, let's get a full 45 minutes to an hour of that. Instead of having half of it be Dr. Lesh and then the, the latter half being Tangina taking over. Just make it Tangina the whole time. No, I can see that. I mean, I like how it says, I don't want to change it. I totally see what you're saying and it definitely makes sense. Movie's still great. Uh, anything else with initial thoughts? I've got nothing else. I'm ready to move on if you are, man. 
All right, so let's move on to favorite scenes or moments. What are some favorite scenes and moments from Poltergeist? Well, my favorite scene is something that you've already explained. And oh, sorry. It's not my favorite. I should say one of my favorite scenes because I love, love, love that opening, man. It's a cold open, but you covered it really well, Bill Bant. And so you've saved us time. We can be more efficient. Yeah, it's just such a great opening. I mean, that's the cold open of the movie is we just get right to it with Carol Ann going straight for the TV and the family waking up to Carol Ann yelling at the TV saying, I can't hear you. Talk louder. Talk louder. I can't hear you. So creepy. And they're all waking up going, what the hell is our young daughter doing staring at the static on a TV and communicating with some otherworldly creatures, even though they don't know that. Uh, great opening. Speaking of Carol Ann and the static on the TV, I'll just go to my next favorite scene then, which is, this is something I didn't remember, Bill Band. I didn't remember the actual whispers coming from the television, which was really creepy, especially even I'm watching this film during the day today. Yes, I have the blinds closed, so it's somewhat darkened in my living room, but it's still bright enough. But I've got my headphones on listening to it. So you can hear the sound design of this film quite exquisitely. And it's great. So in this particular scene, at this point in the film, a storm is coming. A storm is here. And the kids are scared. And funny enough, I think this is actually may have been where I learned that you should count once the lightning strikes between this the lightning and the thunder. Everybody learned. Right? That's how you know how far away the storm is, or if the storm is above you, over you, and if it is moving away from you, that's great, right? (laughs) Yeah, I still do it. This was literally half of our education as kids in the 80s, was just watching these movies. This is how we learned these things. Uh, I remember that. So after that scene, because poor Robbie, the eight-year-old boy, and Carol Ann, the five-year-old daughter, they are scared of the storm. Now, Dana, the 16-year-old daughter, she has no issues. Teenager, she's over it. But the young kids, they're scared of the lightning and the thunder. We get it. We've been there. And they climb into bed with the family. This is one of those things where, from a filmmaker's point of view, I absolutely love. I love the pacing of this particular scene. And it's scary, especially living in California on top of everything. Because all is quiet and the kids are sleeping between the parents in the bed. and. The TV's on, but programming is done. And we once again hear the Star Spangled Banner playing. And we know what that means. It's about to go to static once again. The snow is about to appear on the TV screen. And we know that's going to be an ominous thing because of the cold open. Because we know that Carol Ann is hearing something coming from the TV. So once the TV goes to static, she wakes up. And the others are still asleep. So she climbs out of bed and approaches the television. And we hear the whispers coming from the TV. That actually is what wakes her up. And it's great because you hear the shh from the television, the snow. But then you hear the... It's like, oh my God, stop it. Too creepy. And she hears it. And one of the strange things is, is that there's this like child, like a childlike connection to it. She's not frightened. She's curious. So she goes to the television to communicate with the voices. And I believe she reaches out for the TV at one. Does she reach for the TV? Either way, it's very sudden when a ghost 
actually hand extends from the television screen. That actually scared me. I had forgotten about that. And she is taken aback, but she doesn't run. She just sits there in complete amazement. And this ghost hand reaches out, and then it turns into this streamlined, ghostly stretching arm that goes up and above the rest of the family, still asleep in the bed. And it reaches out to the wall above the headboard, and then it shoots lightning through this ghost streamline into the wall. And then all of a sudden, it creates a seismic event, and the entire room shakes, and the bed shakes, and it's an earthquake, basically. And the entire family awakens, and then everything stops. Silence. And Steve and Diane and Robbie look at Carol Ann sitting at the front of the bed, at the foot of the bed, still on the floor with the TV and the static in the background. And she just turns to them and says, they're here. Outstanding. Outstanding. That's how you do that. I mentioned it's especially creepy here in California because earthquakes suck. And it's scary, especially in the middle of the night when that happens. It's a really helpless feeling. Great scene. Great scene. And I wanted to call this out from a filmmaker's perspective. I mentioned at the beginning, when I started describing the scene, is that the camera move to begin the scene is wonderful because I love it being slow. It's kind of a medium shot on the four of them sleeping in the king-sized bed, all under the covers. They're afraid of the storm, so now they're comfortable and between their parents. Yay and sleeping soundly, and the camera just pulls up and goes into the wide shot of the entire room. And that's when you see the TV on the other side playing the Star Spangled Banner, and then just slowly pushes in and pushes in and pushes in to the TV, which goes to static. And you see even the little clock on the TV that says 2.37 in the morning. Oh boy, here we go. It's a great shot. Love that scene. Yeah, good stuff there. Um, I think what I loved about the opening was when Carol Ann goes to the TV the first time and you kind of see that this is probably a recurring incident where she goes to the TV and talks to these TV people. The TV people. Yeah, absolutely. And you see, you know, Stephen wake up and he's kind of watching Carol Ann and Diane and Robbie and Dana are on the steps and they're watching Carol Ann. And instead of Mm -hmm. interrupting, they're watching how this plays out. And that's a little bit spooky because it seems like it's the first time they've noticed it, but it's probably not the first time that it's happened. So you just kind of wonder how long has this been going on? And I think that's just kind of funny too, how she just answers questions and you're like, whoa, this is weird. It's super creepy. It is well written in that way because she's responding to questions we don't hear. Mm-hmm. And it's very realistic in that way. Five. Because she says her age. She said five, five. I don't know. I don't know. And it's like, oh, my God, she's really having a conversation with someone and we can't hear the other end. Excellent choices. So my first favorite scenes or moments, it's strange things are happening in the kitchen. All right. That's what I had next. Outstanding. Did you? Okay. Hell yeah, man. Ah, oh, this is good stuff. Let's talk about it. So there's three different parts that kind of happen with the yeah. kitchen. This happens right after the scene Jason just explained, where the TV people have entered the house. What does that mean now for the Freelings? What, what is going to happen? Why do they get into the house? And we see them having their breakfast, and they're trying to get ready for school. And there's one moment where Robbie has just a glass of milk in his hand, 
and the bottom drops out of the of the cup and just breaks all into a cereal all over Dana's homework. And you don't think anything of it. Okay, it's a, a faulty glass. They've been yep. using it too long, you know, running in the dishwasher too long. It just eventually got weak and broke, or he just squeezed it just enough. But then, you know, they go to clean up the table, and Robbie picks up his utensils. His fork's all bent out of whack, and his spoon's all bent in weird shapes. Oh, that's kind of weird. But you don't know what it is. Right. So Love it. Love those little details. So we caught ahead a little bit, and... Robbie and Dana are at school, so now it's just Diane and Carol Ann. They're in the house together, and Diane looks at the table and notices that all the chairs are pulled away from the table. So she goes to move them all back in, and she walks across the kitchen, and Carol Ann's sitting on the counter, and Diane goes underneath the sink to get some cleaning supplies, and then when she gets back up, all the chairs are stacked Right. I love that scene because I I would just love to be there on set just to see how they did that. Because mm-hmm. you know they had gotta grab all these chairs real quick and do they have do they have just a one piece that they slapped on there? You know, how many grips had to come in and take all this stuff out and be really quiet and I just would have loved to see how that shot was done. Or do they actually have to cut because it was too quick? But it's just a cool scene because you understand that probably Carol Ann saw what happened, but she probably can't. Oh, she definitely did. Mom. Oh, she definitely saw it. And Diane, is that the TV people? And she just nods her head like, yes. And you're like, holy mm. shit. Uh, okay. She, the, her, oh, I love that. She goes, uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> so these TV people have a little bit, some sense of humor there. And then we have our third part where Steven is coming home from work and he literally pulls into the driveway Diane comes running out. It's like, gotta come in. You gotta see this. You gotta see this. You gotta see this. Love it. Steve has no idea what the hell's going on. And then she literally drags him into the kitchen. And you see on the kitchen floor, they have these circle drawings and they have literally these little circles of where you're supposed to put the feet of the chair. And they have arrows that are pointing this way and that way. And then another circle on the other end of the kitchen. And Diane's trying to explain, like, really weird phenomenon that's happening in the kitchen and she's so excited and you could just tell steve he just had a long day and it's just like i don't need to hear it's like when you walk in the door the first thing you just want to do is just want to get your stuff off and just relax for five minutes you don't want someone in your face i know i get that way sometimes when i get home my kids are like i'm like let me just put my stuff down then i'll hear what you have to say he's definitely going through that moment where it's just let me just get my stuff down and then explain it to me and why is there shit written all over the kitchen floor? And then she's trying to explain what is going on and then takes the chair and puts it in the circle and he still doesn't get it. And then watches the chair slide across the room. You could tell he wasn't really hearing what Diane was saying. And now it's just total shock of what he just saw. And it's, wait, is this some kind of trick you guys? Is this a game you guys made up? And then she's trying to explain way too fast again what is going on. And then they actually use Carol Ann and put her in the circle. And then we watch the Los Angeles Rams helmet on. Yes. (laughs) And then she slides across the room. And now Steven's like, what the hell is going on? Mm -hmm. I left the house. Everything seemed normal. And now I got my kids sliding across the floor by some magic. Strange things are happening in the kitchen. I love it. 
Great stuff, Bill. This stuff is stellar to me. I enjoyed, enjoyed, enjoyed watching this again today. Twice, as a matter of fact. There are so many little details and subtleties within these scenes that make it eerie, that make it scary, that are brilliant direction and brilliant acting moments within. Going back to the uh, first strange occurrence in the kitchen, got to give a shout out to the breakfast scene around the table, the family meal scene around the table. It's a Spielberg signature. I've brought it up before. It's just something that he incorporates in the story that in, just lends itself to the family dynamic that gets you invested in this family. It's a real family. They have real conversation. They're cross-talking over each other, and the kids are making fun of one another. They're having a food fight. All this stuff, it feels very natural, and it gets you into it. And especially then, when the natural dynamic is broken with Joe Beth Williams, as Diane, saying to Carol Ann, uh, you remember you when you said last night they're here, what did you mean by that? And she has to repeat that because Carol Ann doesn't answer it first. He breaks up that kind of chaotic scene at the breakfast table. And it's a very quiet and serious moment. Love that moment. And the fact that when the kids get up from the table and they go off to get ready for school, in meanwhile, E-Buzz, the dog, goes to the breakfast table, climbs up on one of the chairs and eats the leftover waffles. That's when mom tells the kids to remember to push in the chairs. So we see that first, and then the callback later when she returns to the kitchen and she's cleaned up, but all the chairs are now pulled away from the table, and it's super eerie. And just the pacing, the, the direction, the camera movement that slowly swings over to the table as she's looking at it, and she knows something's off because the chairs are pulled away. And it's just great. Like you said, I want to know how they did it, because then she goes underneath the kitchen to get into the cabinet to get the cleaning supplies, comes up. And all the chairs are stacked on the table. You're like, how the hell did they do that? Is that a special effects shot? Is that all practical? Was it editing? Whatever it was, it works 100%. It looks real and it is really freaky. Great stuff. And then moving on to that scene, man, when Craig T comes home from work, he's still got his glasses on. He's trying to bring the trash down. <laughs> In, and she just is so excited. Joe Beth Williams is so excited. <laughs> She's so thrilled to show him this weird thing that's happening where we're going, man, this would freak me the hell out. But she's just at this point, it's kind of this benign thing that's happening. It's not a real threat. It's just a supernatural occurrence in their kitchen. And when she first puts that wooden chair on the circle on the kitchen floor and the chair goes sliding across the kitchen floor. Joe Beth Williams screams out in utter joy. She jumps up in the air and she's like, woohoo! Like it's the best thing she's ever seen. And her natural enjoyment is just infectious. I just love Joe Beth Williams in this movie. And so I love that acting moment for her, especially before the chair e even moves. And she's so anxious for Craig T. Nelson to see it happen. She looks up at him and then does a double take and remembers to take his glasses off his face so she, he can watch it clearly. Some great little acting moments in it. Then once the chair does slide across the floor, we see Craig T. Nelson is like, what the hell just happened? His acting is very subtle, actually, in this. And he has very different reactions to what's happening in this house than Joe Beth Williams, which is nice. There's a, a variety there. There's a juxtaposition. And you can compare and contrast. It's it's very interesting. And I, I thought the direction of 
their performances and their performances unto themselves were great, how they worked off one another. In that moment, after the chair slides across the floor, Craig T. Nelson does this wonderful little subtle thing where he wants to go to the other end to examine the chair, etc. And he almost steps on the circle where the chair was, but he does this thing where he skirts around it. Like he has, like he doesn't want to get in the middle of whatever paranormal force is at work here. Great little acting moment. So he kind of like, like, oh, I almost stepped in the circle. Got to go around it. And then, of course, when they put little Carol Ann in the circle, she slides across the floor. She gets up and she's like, uh, what do you say? Mommy, that burns. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, Joe Beth Williams, so th- excited about all this, goes, like, she's like a little kid in this moment. She's like, to uh, Stephen, Craig T. Nelson, she's like, uh, do you want to try it? Do you want to do it? Because she's done it. She's done it herself. And she's like, you feel this tugging sensation it, like inside your stomach, like it's pulling you. And that's part of the thing, Bill, like you were talking about, where like, oh, this makes me curious. I almost want to do it. Some supernatural force is at play here, and it feels like it's a real thing. And it just, those little things get you totally invested in this movie. Those scenes get me excited, man. That's fun stuff. Do you have a favorite scene or moment? Well, I got a a favorite moment that immediately follows this sequence. Man, again, a testament to Craig T. Nelson and Joe Beth Williams as Steve and Diane Freeling. They go next door to talk to the Tuthills, their neighbors. Oh, yes. All these events that have been happening to them are specific to their home. They're singled out. This house amongst basically all these track homes in this neighborhood, their house is being affected and only their house. What the hell's going on? So they decide to go talk to the neighbors. They must be affected by these events as well, right? It can't just be them. So they go to talk to the Tuthills and it's nighttime. And the mosquitoes are out and it just made me, remind, just reminded me of the Midwest. Like you see the breezes blow and it just feels like, like a hot summer night and the mosquitoes are biting the hell out of them. And Joe Beth Williams and Craig T are talking to the Tuthills and asking them if they've had any disturbances at all. And as they're saying it, they know how crazy it sounds. So they start laughing. They just start breaking up. And they, it's so natural because they're like, have you had, <laughs> you just look at each other like, How do we even say this? How do we even describe what's happening to us without coming off as completely insane? Exactly. And they just laugh. And then they finally get out. Like, have you had any disturbances? Like any furniture moving around or anything? And meanwhile, the Tuthills are like going, what kind of disturbances? No. They're like, oh, the mosquitoes are bad, huh? I'm like, yeah, no, we don't get get bothered by mosquitoes. Son, have you ever gotten bitten by a mosquito? I don't know, Dad. <laughs> they don't no, give a crap. It's just a great little back and forth. Love that little moment. Awesome. Okay, for me, yeah, I'm jumping ahead a little bit for my next favorite scene or moment. Absolutely. All these years later, watching it, I was getting goosebumps. I was getting chills. I was actually afraid that maybe a ghost was sitting with me watching this scene, and that was the ghost coming down the stairs. Absolutely. That's, that I had that in my next chunk here, too, for sure. So at this point in the movie, Carol Ann has been somehow taken taken by the TV people and she is trapped within the house. Another dimension, another world. We we don't know what it is. And Stephen has finally found some paranormal investigators to help because he doesn't know where to turn at this point. Right. They've come to the house and Stephen has shown them what's been going on. They go up to the kids room and they see that all this crazy shit's happening in there where toys are playing by themselves and everything's spinning around. So the paranormal investigators realize, okay, 
These people aren't bullshitting on us. Let's set up shop and see what we can find. And it's the middle of the night. Everybody's sleeping except for Marty and Ryan. And Marty went to go get something to eat. And I'll talk about that later. So Ryan's in there by himself with all the equipment. And all of a sudden they have one of those like Geiger meter charts and it starts going berserk. You just see it literally just going across the paper. It's covering the whole thing. And they have a camera in there set in the room. And all of a sudden you see the camera pan towards the stairs and you can see it start to focus. Not the movie, ca- like the actual video camera that they have set up. Right. It's like has like some sort of oh, motion yeah, sorry. sensor or something. No, I just wanted for the audience to understand the paranormal psychologists have this whole tech set up with the monitors and like that Geiger counter thing you were talking about that's going mm-hmm. off. And they actually have video cameras set up around the house to videotape anything that happens, any occurrence. And there's that one video camera that tr- is tracking something. And it just goes and it moves towards the staircase and zooms in or out. I'm not sure. You see the lens within the camera yeah. zoom in, which is cool. Just wanted to clarify that's all. And so the way this house is set up, it's kind of weird. They have a staircase that kind of runs down into the living room. And at the top of the stairs is Carol Ann and Robbie's room. That's where Carol Ann got taken in the closet. She somehow got sucked into the closet. And they have not been back in the room since this has happened. So the camera's panning up. The paranormal people's camera is panned up to the top of the stairs. And all of a sudden you see smoke in the upper hallway. And then you hear the door start to open. But before this even happens, Marty comes out of the kitchen. And he's literally walking backwards, looking up the stairs, seeing that something's going on. And Ryan the other paranormal investigator has been on his headphones and he's just sketching because nothing's been happening. And he's literally elbowing him like, holy shit, look, something's about to happen. Something's about to happen. And now both of them are, whoa. And the door opens and there's this huge white light and out of the light comes to say it's a spirit and it's so bright. It's glowing the whole living room. Even, even talking about, I'm getting goosebumps. And it makes it starts making its way down the stairs, and while it's making its way down the stairs, everybody else starts waking up, and they're all totally fascinated by what is going on. And the spirits coming down, and then we see all these like little, almost like little pin lights, right? And they're kind of coming down, and they're dancing around this one spirit, and you have no idea what's going on. Of course, no one knows what's going on, and then they kind of do, they kind of speed up really fast, and it shoots into the, the ceiling, mm-hmm. and then Doctor Leash. Tells the guys, play, play it back. Let's see what it is. Play it back. And what's really cool is because they go to play it back and what they pick up on camera is totally something different than what we saw live or they right. saw live just moments ago. On the video camera, you actually see the spirits of the dead coming down the stairs and you can tell it's people that maybe centuries old. And you're like, who the hell are they? What are they doing here? Lost souls. Yes. Yeah. And it just adds to the mystery. And it's just, oh, man, it, it's just a really freaky scene. Yeah, no, well said. Well said, Bill Bant. And those are the poltergeists. It's a great reveal. It's actually quite beautiful and extremely eerie. 
that's a combination that runs throughout this film is the combination. You know, if you talk about Jerry Goldsmith's score, that is hauntingly beautiful. A lot of the moments in here are very emotional, especially coming from the parents dealing with the kids and the trauma that they're enduring. So the beauty and the eeriness is a combination that we experience watching this movie throughout. And that is a great moment because in a lot of films, when the apparition the spirit, the ghost is personified, it can come off as being cheesy or it's too much. It's like, oh, you just ruined it. Now the mystery is gone. But here the mystery is only enhanced, especially by the devices that you use. Like you talked about, Bill, the paranormal psychologist's video camera that they're using captures certain images that we don't see initially. You only see it on playback. And that's a certain technology will capture different things in different waves because things happen on different wavelengths or whatever. Like that's the kind of shit that we love, right? We want to know what's the science behind it. How do we capture these otherworldly images somehow on film or by taking photographs, etc., or recording noises and sounds and dissecting those sounds? It's all quite fascinating. Yeah, that's just great stuff. And I wanted to take this whole paranormal psychologist scene back a bit because what happens before this is extremely emotional because they've arrived at the house and they've kind of taken over and we see Joe Beth Williams communicating with Carol Ann. She's basically talking to the house. She's talking to the walls. She's calling out for her daughter and Carol Ann from within the house, within the walls, the ceiling, the wood railings, the television, she's calling out to her mommy. She's like, mommy, I can't see you. Where are you? And the paranormal psychologists have like a little lapel mic attached to the speaker on the TV. And they're picking up Carol Ann's voice through the recorders and they're enhancing it and stuff. And Ryan's on the headphones, et cetera. It's all really cool shit. It just looks cool. Like you buy into it, right? This is suspension of disbelief stuff, but we're totally in hook, line and sinker. And you see Joe Beth just going through it. She wants her daughter. And Craig T. Nelson, who's just dealing with it in his own way, he's been drinking. He's out of sorts. He looks like total hell. He's half the time in disbelief, not believing what's happening, and then totally believing what's happening, and then laughing in certain moments because it's completely ridiculous. And now the paranormal psychologists are there, supposedly there to provide answers. There's Joe Beth talking to her daughter and making some sort of contact. And Carol Ann is saying, there's there's the light, there's the light. And the paranormal psychologist leader, who's Dr. Lesh, she says, oh, yes, there's the light. That's right. And Joe Beth Williams says, yes, Carol Ann, baby, go towards the light. And Dr. Lesh warns her. She says, no, no. Yes, the light is an exit, but it is a path to some something else, but not for her, not for your daughter. Meaning that light to go to the beyond is for the lost souls. It's not for Carol Ann. So Joe Beth Williams is like, don't go towards the light. Don't go towards the light. Regardless, that's when we first get a sense of the beast that is basically the guardian of this realm in this at this house. Whether it be the devil or Satan or whomever, it's the beast. And it's big and bad. And we know that it roars loudly. And we can hear throughout the house as Joe Beth Williams looks up we hear like these large thumping footsteps and Carol Ann's voice being taken off and carried away basically as her voice fades away. We assume the beast is taking her away and Joe Beth Williams goes up the stairs and then it's just completely silent. And all of a sudden there's this, and there's this gust of wind that goes right through Joe Beth Williams. And she has such a wonderful acting moment here where she just goes, 
And she turns around. She says, I think Carol Ann just moved through me. She just went through me. I could feel her in my soul. And it's this great moment where she lifts the scarf off of her and she says, I can smell her. I can smell her. Can you smell her? Craig T. Nelson smells the scarf and says, oh my God, that's her. And then Dr. Lesh approaches and smells it. Yes. And it's just one of those moments that's kind of heavy and it's really cool. I wanted to call that out. Jason, you know, you actually made that scene creepier for me because I never thought that maybe it was the beast that picks Carol Ann up and takes her away. I always thought it was just Carol Ann running away from the beast. But now that you said that, oh, that's even spookier that this entity grabs her and takes her off because he needs her and he doesn't want her to communicate with the outside world and have right. her escape. Because she's going towards the light and she says, no, don't go towards the light. And then you hear the mm-hmm. as if it's the beast. And I agree with you, Bill. I didn't think it was the beast at first. I, I thought it was just Carol Ann like running away. But in my interpretation... It's confirmed because right after you hear the thumping, thumping, there's the roar from the beast. You hear the and the wind goes and knocks everybody mm-hmm. over kind of thing. Uh, that's what I'm going with. I like that one. Uh, I had another Joe Beth Williams moment. It's when Diane Freeling, the mom, Joe Beth Williams, man, this is after the paranormal psychologists have been there and it just things aren't great. <laughs> it's a really quiet moment amidst the chaos here. Because a lot of shit's gone down and Diane is in her robe and she's been picking up things around the house and she goes to the kid's bedroom where the door is firmly closed and you don't go in there. Nobody goes in there now because that's basically the entrance to the other world, the portal. And it's a quick moment and Diane is just hopeful. She's just hopeful. She just wants to talk to her daughter and she puts her ear to the door and she's like, Carol Ann, hello, can you hear me? And then she reaches for the knob. Just maybe, just maybe she can open the door and communicate with her daughter. And as soon as she turns the doorknob and opens the door ever so slightly, you just hear, and like all the screaming. And she immediately shuts the door. And it's really fucking scary. That made me jump. I had forgotten about that moment. And it's really quick. And it's really, really frightening. Yeah, that is a good little moment. And supposedly that is the first thing they shot. That's what I read. But yeah, that is spooky too. I agree with that. Okay, so I'm going to move on to, I tried to keep it at three, so I'm keeping it at three. Better man than I. So my last favorite scene, it's towards the end. I think there's just the the kid in me just loves this. We find out at some point is the house is in the neighborhood. We're built on a cemetery. And unfortunately, they moved the headstones, but they left all the bodies there. So at this point in the movie, they have gotten Carol Ann back. They've rescued her from the beast. And Tangina has said that the house is clear. They're okay. But the Freelings are going to move out anyway. Well, the house is not clean. They still have a problem. And the beast is trying to get Carol Ann back. And Diane is by herself because Stephen has gone back to the office to clear stuff out. And once he gets back, they're getting the hell out of there. So all this chaos happens. But the part of the ending that I love is just we got dead bodies popping out of the ground. 
I freaking love dead bodies yeah. popping out of the ground. And there's this, a scene where the kids are trapped in the bedroom. Diane has trying to get in, but there's some kind of supernatural spark. They, they've almost like literally shocked her out of the house and she's trying to figure out a way back in. And she initially falls into this pool that they were building, which is not complete at all. All they've done is dig the hole. And of course it's raining and she falls into the pool and literally the coffins are popping out of the ground and yep. all the deceased are popping out of the coffins all over her. And she finally gets herself out of the pool with the help of the neighbors and she wants the, the neighbors to help and of course they don't want to so she gets back in the house she finally rescues the kids and now she's trying to get them out of the house now the coffins are literally coming through the house itself she tries to go to the front door steven has finally shown up and he sees the house is totally freaking out and the coffin pops up in front of the front door so they can't go through the front door so now they're trying to get out through the kitchen and there's coffins popping out of the kitchen and they finally get out of the house and everyone's trying to get in the car and a coffin pops through literally the garage door and the body lands onto the hood of the car. And Steven's trying to find his keys and the kids, everyone's just screaming like, start the goddamn car, start the goddamn car. I wrote that down. There's some great stuff. I just love the coffins are popping up. All this dirt's just flying everywhere or pieces of the house or whatever. Just love seeing the dead bodies. It's just freaky, but it's so cool at the same time. I love it, man. This is what I wrote down for my last favorite scene. The last 18 minutes. Oh, there you go. And you basically covered a lot of it. It's fantastic. And speaking of those dead bodies popping up everywhere, I mean, like you said, it starts with Jo Beth Williams out in the rain and she falls into the dugout area where the pool is going to go. And it's just all mud, which is fantastic. And she's just slipping and sliding. She goes into the muddy water at the bottom of the hole and just gets covered with skeletons and the coffins start popping up. I believe that's when the first casket pops up from under the ground and shoots up in her face and it opens up and a skeleton falls out like it's supposed to be scary and it could almost be goofy but because of the sound design and the chaotic nature and the rain and everybody's screaming and they just keep popping up one after another, it's really effective. It totally works. You're like, this is insane and really scary. This is not good. These bodies are coming up out of the ground and they're coming after them, even though they're not really attacking them physically, but it just doesn't matter. They're just there to terrorize by existing and it's insane. So yeah, the last 18 minutes, like I said, you think this movie's over after Tangina has, quote unquote, cleaned the house? Uh-uh. Even though they're packing up and moving out, and you're like, yeah, about time, guys. Gotta leave this house. Oh, wait, the movie ain't over, though. Because Craig T, he's going off to work. This just some great filmmaking here. Great tension building. It's classic stuff, It and it's just to be studied. As film students, I'm, I'm watching it and learning it all over again today. When Joe Beth is drawing the bathwater because her part of her hair is she's got gray streaks in her hair because she got the shit scared out of her so many times and she's yep. been to the other side. That's basically why she has the gray streaks is that she's actually gone to the other side to rescue her daughter at this point and bring her back. And she's dyeing her hair. She's drawing a bath and we see the kids climbing into bed and they're just going to sleep for a bit here. I think it's one last night before they leave, right? So... The kids are about to, to pass out, and this is the clown moment, which I thought was happened earlier in the movie. That was my recollection, but no, it happens towards the end. And Robbie looks at that stupid clown doll on his chair, throws his jacket to cover it, and misses, 
And there's a great shot here where you see the clown's arm like fall to the side and swing. And there's like a shadow as it's the arms, the like the hand of the clown is swinging back and forth underneath the chair. And you hear the jingle from the hat of the clown and the ching, ching, ching. And it's like, oh my God, come on. And of course, it's intercut with Joe Beth in the bathtub. And there's just like these slow pans. And you think something's going to jump up and grab Joe Beth in the bathtub. Doesn't happen. It's just tension building. Cut back to Robbie in bed. And he gets up and looks back at the chair. Of course, the clown's gone. It's gone. It's gone. Where is it? Of course, it's under the bed. Don't look under the bed. Robbie looks under the bed. One side, not under there. Looks under the other side, not under there. Then he leans up and wears it. Yeah, of course, the clown's right behind him and does the stretchy arm thing around Robbie's neck, strangling him. And meanwhile, Joe Beth is relaxing in a room, drying her hair. She leans back onto her bed. And then the paranormal or poltergeists grab a hold of her and basically are assaulting her on the bed, trying to lift up her shirt. She goes up against the wall and she's being dragged up the walls and the ceiling. And it's just classic stuff. It's one thing after another, which then leads to her going outside and and all the dead bodies popping up, and Craig T. finally shows up with the station wagon. Thankfully. Station wagon to the rescue. But man, when they get into the car with him, and he's trying to find the right key to start the ignition, and they're just going, it's the classic, like, lightning's going off, and the yep. girls are screaming, start the car, start the car, start it. He's trying to, he's like, oh my god, oh my god. And the bodies are falling in the car. It's just like, holy shit. Uh, super intense, man. The last 18 minutes are fantastic, only to round it out with them leaving and you get the great uh, street sign with the, you are now leaving Cuesta Verde. We'll miss you. <laughs> sign. And they end up at a Holiday Inn. Man, when they go into that hotel room and you're just like, they're all exhausted. They have nothing. They didn't take anything because no, yeah. they rushed out of the house. They have nothing. And they go into the hotel room and shut the door and you're like, oh, thank God. And then the door opens and Craig T. Nelson shoves the TV out onto the walkway and then slams the door behind him. The end. Yeah, they have nothing and they've lost everything because the house has literally been sucked up. So whatever they put in the moving van earlier that day, that's all they got. That's it. What a great special effect at the end. The house itself is consumed by the poltergeists and or the beast and it implodes and collapses in on itself as Mr. Teague, the owner of the entire neighborhood, is watching on and all he can do is cry as he knows basically the whole town has gone to hell. Yep. But the whole, Someone's it's a cool effect. Bankrupt. Yeah, no shit. All right, so that's all I had for favorite scenes or moments. I know you got a yeah, couple more. Yeah, me too, man. Really? Yeah, let's, let's keep it moving. We're good. Hello, this is Jason, co-host of the All 80s Movies Podcast, with a message from Factor Meals. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer, thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you will always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you will always have new flavors to explore. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your your next month. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. 
So let's move on to Swiss cheese and complaint department. And why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have holes that apparitions and ghosts can come out of. And if it doesn't fall under Swiss cheese, we just file a complaint with the complaint department. All right. Do you have any Swiss cheese? No, no. I got, I've got a bunch of complaints to issue. Not a bunch, actually. Not that many, actually. But I do just, yeah, complaints. All right. I got, I got some complaints. So start in the beginning of the movie. Okay, even though it's a funny scene when uh, the Freelings have all the friends over and they're watching the football game. <laughs> yes. Okay. I hope this when, is what I think it is. So when would Mr. Rogers Neighborhood be on at the same time as the Rams oh, football game? Oh, my God. Oh. That's the one thing I do love about being here in California is that on Sundays, football starts at 10 a.m. I don't have to wait till one o'clock like on the East Coast. But football and Mr. Rogers Neighborhood is never going to be on at the same time. And then what I couldn't believe also on top of that was one of the guys that was watching the game when Fred Rogers goes on and he says, who's this? You're telling me you don't know who Fred Rogers is? Come on. Fred Rogers is an icon. If he said, what's this? Because he's surprised that the channel has changed. I would have bought that. But don't tell me you don't know who Fred Rogers is. That hurts. Everybody knows who Fred Rogers is. <laughs> you took it personally. I did. Don't say who's this. Say what's this. Yeah. Good call, man. I, I thought you were going to say something else, but that's much, much better. And it's, it's a lot funnier. The, bringing in the beer? Yeah. Well, first of all, I have to say this, which I thought was brilliant. I didn't really think about it until the second watch, was that when we're seeing the overhead like aerial shot of Cuesta Verde homes, the neighborhood, we see someone on a bicycle riding down the street. I'm like, of course, this is very Spielberg thing. You know, the kids on the bikes riding through the town. It's very small town flavor. You know, that's what the kids do. And we see it in an E.T. We see it all the time in Stranger Things now, which is great. You know, it's all a homage to Spielberg. It's another Spielberg signature. So we see this person on a bike and it comes down and it's an adult, full grown ass man on a bike carrying cans of beer. And the kids actually end up showing up sitting on the curb with remote control cars and they manage to kind of get him off track, this guy on the bike, and he drops the cans of beers and then they one of them pops, a couple of them pop open. They're spraying Every everywhere. one of them pop. Yeah, I don't get why then he decides it's okay to go into the home with these beer cans spraying and spewing beer all over the place, then goes into the living room where it's still spewing and the guys aren't complaining. I I'd thought like, the same if, thing. I'm like, Craig T, I'd be like, dude, now you've got beer spraying all over my TV and book stands and the furniture and the carpet. Look, dude. You're not getting that smell out, that Dale beer smell. Here's a question, though, for you, Bill Bant. This is another thing I thought of. Now, Craig T and his neighbors are watching the, the Rams game, right? Yes. And they're all perfectly, like, positioned. Like, it's probably, you know, for the composition of the frame, right? You got to have a, the guys standing in the row in the background and then the guys yes, sitting two in perfect the front. Rows. And they're all cheering just like you see in every football commercial right like whether it's for doritos or the chips or the dips or whatever it is for you know it's like the people all standing and cheering and they're wearing the jerseys and it's all too perfect have you really ever seen or have you been with your friends where there's guys all standing around cheering on a game it's usually dudes we all just sit sit in the chairs and when something happens exciting it happens you know you all maybe get up and cheer and fist pump etc but there you're not just all standing and cheering right. on a game throughout every single play. It's football. All of a sudden, you could snap their fingers and say, okay, we're going to take a team photo, and they wouldn't need to move because they're all in perfect position for it. That is a little weird. Yeah, you'd all be I'm smart like, This out. just you... looks like a commercial for a football. 
for folks. Because if I had that many people over, you'd have the folding chairs out. You'd have like the little serving table with the pretzels on there and not four people sitting on a couch and the other four literally standing behind the couch. No. It's just kind of funny. Yeah. I got a question for you, Bill Bant. Okay. Why bury Tweety the bird if the yard is going to be dug up the following day? Carol Ann, that poor girl. This is one of the cool things, you know, we see a lot of subtle signs that things are not going to go well here in this particular household from the get because Carol Ann's little bird, she names appropriately Tweety. Mm -hmm. Tweety the bird has passed away and is lying in the bottom of the cage. And so Joe Beth goes to uh, dispense with the bird, but Carol Ann sees her in the act. And so they decide to bury Tweety the bird in a cigar box. Nice little ritual that they engage in. And they bury the box with Tweety inside in the garden, like the little flower patch garden outside. Well, they know damn well that the next day the whole yard is going to be torn up and they're digging a hole for their new underground pool. So like the following day, we see literally see the bulldozer coming through, the digger coming through and digging up where the all takes out half the flower bed, by the way. I know. And the box with Tweety the bird in it, too. I'm like... Why would you guys bury the bird there then? I'm so, I was so confused by that. I'm actually going to take that a step further because my next <laughs> complaint is, okay, so they're putting the pool in and you have this dead tree in your backyard. Wouldn't that be the time to take the tree down then? Because hmm. you're going to start digging into the tree's roots. And you're going to have to rip those all apart in order to get this pool. Take the tree down and then it's not eating Robbie later. So that made no sense to me either. That's dangerous then. If you're digging out half the roots, the tree's going to fall over into the pool. That made no sense. Yeah. I love it because that leads right into my next complaint or complaints uh, because it starts with the tree. And I have some issues with Robbie here too. Okay. Poor little Robbie. I just got some questions for him, really. First of all, look, if I had a tree like that outside of my window, I would close the effing shades. Yes, I agree. I would close the shades almost all the time, even during the day. That tree is so creepy. First of all, why the F do you have a tree? Okay. Because it's the oldest tree in the neighborhood? Because it was there when you built the house there, Craig T., Dad? Well, why is it dead all the time? You know what? Chop it down. Because it's effing creepy, and it's looking at me through the window. Robbie actually says it knows things about him. It knows where he lives. Get rid of the tree. Oh, and Robbie, close the shades, man. Oh, my God. If I were a kid and that tree was outside my window... I would be so frightened. It's funny. And, I did, oh, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> no, it's funny because I did notice watching it this time because there was another tree in the neighborhood and it was like mm-hmm. huge, but it looked dead also. Oh, yeah. What time of year is this? They have these huge yeah, okay. trees with zero leaves on them whatsoever. Right. Like, we're in California. We don't really have fall. Not where the trees are completely bare like that. Yeah. It's a neighborhood of dead trees, but their tree was dead. That was my first question for Robbie was like, why don't you close the shades, man? Agree just, with you. Just... And then second of all, get rid of the creepy clown. Come on, dude. You hate it. Why do you have it? It's sitting on a chair at the foot of your bed. The worst place to put it. How does this kid ever sleep? Why doesn't he have like huge bags under his eyes all the time from just basically insomnia? Like he just couldn't sleep because there's a a haunted tree outside of his window and his shades are permanently open. And the creepy ass clown is sitting on a chair in front of his bed. Yeah. Worst case scenario all around. Robbie. Sweet baby Jesus, get rid of the clown. Just toss it out, put it in the basement, put it downstairs, and parents have an issue with it or closing the shades or whatever, just start making some demands to be transferred to a different bedroom altogether. That's what I'm saying, Robbie. Come on, man. Make it easy on yourself. And then even when they're packing, wait, the clown's not even packed? It's still in the room? Yeah, right. Jesus. 
Oh, yeah. If I'm Robbie, that's the first thing I'm packing. First yeah. box. See you, clown. Later. <laughs> if it ends up in the trash, I won't be upset. I do love that Robbie gets his revenge though on the clown at the very end when he starts yanking the stuffing out. Holy like, moly. Yeah, Robbie. That's a future yes, ciliary Robbie. killer right there. Got to get rid of the clown early. How does that construction crew not lose their job, though? Maybe is that why the pool didn't get finished? I mean, first off, Dana leaves the house and they're all hooting and hollering at her like she's a piece of meat. Yeah, you don't talk to my kids like that. You know, you have one of the guys sticking his hands in the window eating food and drinking coffee. I'm like, uh, yeah, I need someone else to finish this pool. <laughs> Absolutely. That guy had a funny name, too. The guy that was sticking his hands in the... Was it Bluto? Bluto. That was it. Great call. All right. So I got to talk about Marty a little bit. Let's do it. That's literally the next thing I had. Um, so Marty is one of the uh, paranormal investigators. And man, that guy has no luck in that house whatsoever. But at one point, it's about two o'clock in the morning. And Marty is up with Ryan. And Marty's like, uh, I'm kind of hungry. I'm going to go in the kitchen and get something to eat. Okay. You know, I don't have a problem with that. So he goes in, he's right in the fridge and pulls out some chicken and starts chicken eating wing. it. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> okay, that's fine. You know, he's got to stay awake, get something to eat. But then he pulls out like this huge steak out of the fridge and then gets a frying pan. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a second. It's two o'clock in the morning and you're going to take the Freeling steak and fucking cook it at two in the morning? Yeah. Come on. Yeah, I thought this. You're going to wake everybody up. That's not cool. They're all going to hear her. They're all going to smell and you're going to wake them all up. I mean, what happened to you after that? You deserved it. I'm sorry. <laughs> Just the steak. What's wrong with the chicken? Just finish the chicken. Not take their yeah. steak. And the chips. You got chicken and chips. That's all you need. I'll take the steak. He just grabs the slab of steak and just throws it onto the countertop. Which That's hilarious, too. That's a thick slice. That's going to take a oh, while to cook, Oh, it's a huge cook, piece too. of steak. It's a big piece of meat. And that's a, you're right. I'd be like, dude, don't take their prime piece of meat. Take anything else. He's eating a steak at 2 o'clock in the morning. Good Lord. Yeah. He's just going to throw the pan on, like start up and just cook up a storm. <laughs> that's a great call. Yeah, that was the one thing that took me out. I mean, it's just dated. You know, it was probably very creepy at the time. You brought this up at the beginning of our pod. That the special effect when Marty goes into the side room with the sink there and he starts scratching at his face and basically he's kind of in a moment taken over by paranormal activity by the poltergeists and he starts tearing his face off of his skull. The rubber face effect, which is very similar to what Schwarzenegger looks like in The Terminator yes. a couple of years later in 1984. Very similar. It's kind of that wax head He's got like a wax head and then it's very fake. It wasn't a great effect. It's a complaint, but understandable. It was the times. They were doing the best with what they had. And whatever that voice they were using. <laughs> yeah, it was a little little cheese ball. All right, so this is my last complaint. So they rescued Carol Ann. The house is supposedly clean. Right. Regardless, that's my last night in the house. As soon as I wipe all that gook off Diane and Carol Ann, we're on the way to the mother-in-laws. I'm not staying there. I wouldn't even let the kids sleep in their own room again. That made no sense to me. Uh, no, I don't care what this lady said. A lot of freaky shit just happened the last couple of weeks. We are out of here. Totally agree 100%. That night, I mean, immediately after the event, you go to a hotel. Get cleaned up. Go to a hotel. The only reason you go back to the house is to pack up. And that's it. Done. 
you're never spending another night or any more time than you need to at that house. I just hire movers to go take the stuff out of the house, pack it up, pay a little extra for them to pack it up for you, whatever it takes. I probably wouldn't ever step foot in the house again. Not at all. We would have been out of there five minutes later. Yeah, so that's pretty much it. I, you know, my general complaint would probably be what we had, again, spoken of earlier, but it's story clarification. And you talked about a little bit of needing clarification with the beast. And I just wanted to hopefully clarify this for the audience a little bit as to what, or maybe you can help me as I kind of walk through this, but this is just maybe for my own sake, is that we understand that this house has been built upon a cemetery, a cemetery which had supposedly been moved. However, only the headstones were moved, not the bodies. And now whomever resides in these graves, well, their souls are stuck basically in the middle, a so-called purgatory. And they either weren't ready to die or not ready to move on. And these lost souls can move on if they only walk towards or approach the light, which is supposedly we can understand is just like a euphemism for heaven or the beyond, the greater beyond to where they can be, these souls can be at peace, but they can't find the light. However, this house where the Freelings live happens to be one of the first homes to be built in this neighborhood. And Carol Ann was the only one to actually be born in this house. And she represents a life force, a light unto herself, to which these lost souls are attracted. And they thus communicate through her, through any means possible, first through the television and the static, etc., and then basically extract themselves out of the TV and into the walls. And now these lost souls are coming for Carol Ann, and they manage to get her. She is then sucked into the closet, through the portal in the closet, into this otherworld dimension where she's existing amongst these poltergeists, these kind of in-between souls. And not only do these souls exist in this in-between world, but this beast also reigns in this world and doesn't want either of these lost souls to find the light and move into the beyond and find peace. This is my take on it, is that he wants to keep them to himself. And he knows because these souls are attracted to the light, the life force that is Carol Ann, he keeps Carol Ann near him. The beast wants Carol Ann under his wing at all times to keep the souls attracted to her and to keep the souls to staying within his reign, within this realm. And if she gets away from him and leads these souls to the light, then the beast loses. The idea here is that Obviously, she's in this otherworldly realm, and now the Freelings, the family, they've got to extract her from the realm. They bring in not only the paranormal psychologists, but a clairvoyant in the form of Tangina, and she can communicate with them. She understands the method to do this, to extract Carol Ann from this otherworldly uh, dimension, is to have the mother, whom she seems to have the strongest connection to, go in because we've discovered this by location. This is what I'm, I'm discerning from watching this twice is that there's an entrance and an exit for the souls, the poltergeists, the entrance is through the closet. The exit is through the ceiling in the living room. So Joe Beth is going to tie a rope around herself, go into the entrance through the kid's closet, go in, 
grab Carol Ann, exit through the ceiling in the living room, which she accomplishes. And then they have goop all over them. They got to get into the bath water and get cleaned off. Does that pretty much sum up most of it? Is that Does that sound correct to you? Mostly, yes. I mean, there is some kind of holes with the story because you think about because it almost makes it seem like everyone buried in that cemetery is a lost soul, which I mm-hmm. would not find that to be correct. But for some reason, they're gathering in that area. And yes, the cemetery has probably something to do with it. But yeah, the beast element, you know, we really have no idea what the hell this beast thing is, why it's there, where it's from, why it even wants to keep these souls or how it works in conjunction with the souls right i think everything else you said makes sense i was really trying to figure it out because i also yeah it's like why are so why are the the souls only after carol ann why do they only communicate with her or mainly communicate with her and then yes the cemetery supposedly according to mr teague was 300 acres so it's not just underneath their home. It's under like a bunch of the a whole part of the neighborhood. And we do see at the end of the film, towards the end, that all the bodies are coming up through the ground in different areas. Right. But all the haunting seems to be very specific to the Freeling's house. Right. And that's the one question I would love answered is because there's one point where Stephen says that Caroline was born in the house. Now, she was the only that one mean- born in the house. Does that mean she was literally born in the house? Like they did some kind of birthing mother came in and she was born there and that's what Mm -hmm. attracted the spirits or the fact that maybe she was the first child in that neighborhood and that's what attracted the spirits. I wish that was cleared up a little bit. At first I was thinking literal, but now I'm like, no, maybe it's just because as a newborn it exudes some kind of aura that attracted these wandering spirits to her. And it just got concentrated into that house. There's just something about her that all the spirits in that area are, are now focusing on that house. Then right. when you get into the right. second movie, it kind of contradicts everything because then there's literally bodies underneath the cemetery itself. There's a cult underneath the cemetery. And that's really what was causing everything. Mm-hmm. There's some questions. There's some questions, some holes in the story itself. I guess we found some Swiss cheese here. And yeah, I'd be curious if like there's any answers in the novelization or any extra information we could glean from the novelization of this. But I think we can extrapolate, you know, like extrapolate and kind of guess as to why things happen. But even at the end, then the house collapses unto itself, but there's not real closure with the whole where are they now and who's the beast? You know, the whole thing with Tangina was the house is clean, but the house wasn't clean. No, because we don't think the souls ever got to the light, though, because she started sending them. Right. And then Stephen flipped out because he thought she was telling Diane to go to the light and she was telling everyone else to go to the light. And he got confused and then almost pulled Diane out too early. A lot of that is confusing. I was confused, too, as to what the light is and who's going, which go to light or don't go to the light. But it is a great shot when he freaks out and then the beast comes out and you see it in kind of the full huge skeleton creepy face comes out of the closet. And this is kind of cool because you pointed that this out where you said the closet is the entrance into the other dimension and the, and the ceiling is the exit. Mm-hmm. Whereas for them, it's the opposite. They come out through the closet and get back in through the ceiling. 
So they do the reverse of what the people are, yeah. everyone else is doing. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Hey, tweet us, email us if you know more. We'd love to know more. We yeah. want to figure this out because it's really cool. It It is a little confusing at times. Yeah, it is. I agree. All right, let's move on to, hey, it's that actor. All right. In this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's that actor. So, Jason, who do you have who's your, hey, it's that actor? For Poltergeist, my, hey, it's that actor is James Karen, who portrays Mr. Teague, the owner of Cuesta Verde Properties. Did you have the same hands that I Yes, I did. Oh, you did? But that's okay. I'm sure you have much more on James Karen than I do. I just, I didn't get into a deep dive on him. I can go over a little bit of his filmography. In 1980, he was in The Jazz Singer as Barney Callahan. Then he was Mr. Teague in Poltergeist here in 1982. He was in The Return of the Living Dead in 1985. He was in Jagged Edge in the same year, 1985. He was in Wall Street. 1987, 1988, he returns to Return of the Living Dead, part two, as Ed. Then, uh, you know what? He was actually in a couple episodes of Coach, Craig T. Nelson's show. Uh, he was in Congo in 95, Nixon in 95, Apt Pupil in 98, The Pursuit of Happiness in 2006. Man, if you saw him, you'd know him. This is James Karen, great character actor. It was just in a ton of television shows, series, his work goes dates back to 1948. That's how long this guy's been working. His credits are go back to 1948. And rest in peace, James Karen passed in 2018 at the age of 94. Long life for James Karen. And there was a little bit of trivia here. James Karen, at uh, the time that they had shot and released Poltergeist, was also the commercial spokesman for Pathmark Supermarkets. And he received hate mail from people saying they would never shop there again because of his character's treatment of the Freelings, the family in Poltergeist. It's kind of funny. Uh, what else do you have on James Karen? James Karen, so much TV in the 80s. Yeah. A small list of the shows that he was on in the 80s. Jefferson's, Dallas, MASH, Family Ties, Three's a Crowd, Moonlighting, Who's the Boss, and Golden Girls. That's probably only a third of the ones that he was on. And yeah, for me growing up, because I lived in the Northeast and that's where Pathmark supermarkets were, that's where I first knew him from. I would see him in those commercials oh, all the time. So he was Mr. Pathmark great. in our area. That's where I knew him from. And of course, for me, his biggest movie role is Return of the Living Dead, uh, which is a sure. huge fan. That's how I thought of as soon as I saw that credit. I'm like, oh, Bill knows this. Yeah. So Pathmark supermarkets are still around. There's, it's like blockbusters. There's only one left in New Jersey. But that no was kidding. The, yeah. There was like the big three. It was like Shopping Bag, Acme, and Pathmark. That was like the big three supermarkets in our area growing up. And he was Mr. Pathmark. See him on TV all the time. That's great. He's great. So recognizable. As soon as you see him, he's been in everything. Ladies and gents, check out his filmography. Extensive, man. Yeah, and he's got that great voice. Oh, yeah. Extremely identifiable. Let's move on to facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia that we have not discussed when it comes to Poltergeist? Well, 
many of our listeners out there that are familiar with this film may be familiar with what is known as The Curse of Poltergeist. I'm not going to get into it here. That's just my choice. Bill Bant, feel free to do so. However, I do recommend listening to the great podcast, Stuff You Should Know, which is one of the most listened to and most popular podcasts out there. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful podcast. I've actually learned a lot from listening to those guys. And uh, they have a great episode entitled, Can Movies Be Cursed? And it has a pretty good breakdown of the unfortunate occurrences that took place surrounding the Poltergeist franchise. So here's a little piece of trivia. The dog's name, E-Buzz, which I thought was unique. I was like, you named your dog E-Buzz? Comes from a sketch on Saturday Night Live with Dan Aykroyd playing E-Buzz Miller, a pimp who critiques naked Victorian art. I don't remember that sketch. No. Interesting. I mentioned at the beginning of the show that Poltergeist was nominated for three Oscars. Well, it lost all three to Steven Spielberg's E.T. Yep. So Steven's still a winner either way. Keep going. Roll with it. So this is the only part I'm going to say about the Poltergeist curse. So Dominique Dunn, who played Dana in the movie, and I didn't realize this until last year when we did American Werewolf in London, that Griffin Dunn. Oh. But as soon as you see her. Right. You can tell they totally look like brother or sister. But it's weird. Like sure. I've never seen anything where he mentions any of this. So on October 30th, 1982, Dominique was strangled by her ex-boyfriend, John Sweeney, on the property of her West Hollywood home. Um, she died on November 4th at the age of 22, having never regained consciousness. This I could not believe. Sweeney yeah. was only sentenced to two and a half years in prison for the murder. How is that possible? That I couldn't believe. Just wrong. Tragic. Very. And wrong. Well, in that case, uh, I'll just follow that up. Of course, we do know uh, probably the more well-known fact regarding the the curse and the tragedies that followed the production of this film was on February 1st, 1988, Heather O'Rourke, who played Carol Ann, uh, she died of intestinal stenosis at the age of 12 which was also extremely tragic. And there's a number of other events surrounding this entire franchise, which are very strange and also equally as tragic. And again, listen to that podcast, or you can just do your own research. It's out there, folks. Yeah, because a lot of people say that the reason the film was cursed is because with the skeletons, and I mentioned one of my favorite scenes about the bodies popping out of the ground, that they used real skeletons, and that's what caused the curse. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just FYI, that's not the first movie to ever use skeletons. And none of the uh -huh. other movies with skeletons have been cursed. It's it's common yeah. that people, because it's just cheaper to buy the skeletons. So that's not the cause. Okay. Then there'd be right. like 800 right. other movies that have curses because they yeah, use no skeletons doubt about on it. set. Just crazy circumstances. That's all. Yeah, yeah. I was mentioning Heather O'Rourke, who plays Carol Ann, wonderful in this movie. Wonderful child actor. And during all the horrors that preceded, that proceeded while filming Poltergeist, only one scene really scared her. That in which she had to hold onto the headboard while a wind machine blew toys into the closet behind her. The young actress fell apart. Producer Steven Spielberg is said to have stopped everything and took her in his arms and said that she would not have to do that scene again. Which is kind of weird because that whole headboard thing is torn apart when she gets taken and then... It's miraculously all put back together when they try to take her again and her and Robbie are hanging onto it for her dear life. 
Yeah, there's some weird stuff with that because you see the headboard getting pulled apart as she's being pulled toward the closet. And then she lets go of it and gets pulled backward. But then in the next shot, she actually has a piece of it in her hands. Mm-hmm. So there's some weird stuff yeah, with that. There. Some editing things. So we mentioned at the very end of the movie that they end up at a Holiday Inn. Unfortunately, it was not at Holiday Inn Express. But we see on the sign it says, Welcome, Dr. Fantasy and Friends. Yep. So Dr. Fantasy is the nickname for producer Frank Marshall. That's kind of funny. Huh. Drew Barrymore was considered for the role of Carol Ann, but producer Steven Spielberg wanted someone more angelic. It was Barrymore's audition for this role. However, that landed her the part of Gertie in E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Work for both movies, so good call on that Absolutely. One. All right, so here's my last fact and trivia, and this one I found really interesting. So we're going back to Dana, because I remember there's the scene where Steven tells paranormal investigators at their place who lives in the house in their ages. And he says that mm-hmm. Diane's 32. And you're like, oh, crap. She had Dana when she was 16 years old. Right. According to the novelization, Dana is not Diane's child. That's actually Stephen's child from another marriage. And only Robbie and Carol Ann are biological Stephen's kids. kids. Yeah. yeah. Stephen and Diane's kids. Oh, sorry. Stephen and Diane's kids. Right. Because right. Diane was his second wife. Right. Stepmother for Dana. So I was like, oh, okay. That kind of cleared that up. Because you're doing the math and you're like, wait. Yeah. It's like, whoa. <laughs> uh, good stuff, man. I only have a couple more quick ones. Okay. So at around 14 minutes into the movie, uh, Steve and Diane Freeling are in their bedroom. In the movie, A Guy Named Joe from 1943 is playing on their television. Not only is this a movie about a dead person who's still hanging around, as the spirits in this film are, but Steven Spielberg remade A Guy Named Joe seven years later, titled Always. Richard Dreyfuss. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I think the last one I had here, this is kind of weird, and take it or leave it. This is internet research, folks. Joe Beth Williams had a supernatural experience during the making of this film. Whenever she came home from filming, the pictures on the walls of her house were crooked. Every time she fixed them, they would hang crooked again. Zelda Rubenstein also had an experience when a vision of her dog came to her and said goodbye to her. Hours later, her mother called her and told Rubenstein that her dog had passed away that very day. I don't know. I don't know, man. Strange occurrences. Strange, strange. So let's move on to box office. Poltergeist was released on June 4th, 1982 in 890 theaters. On an estimated budget of $11 million, it grossed $74.7 million domestically and $47 million internationally for a worldwide gross of $121.7 million. It debuted number three at the box office behind the debut of Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, which we discussed on this podcast, and Rocky Three, Poltergeist would stay in the top 10 for the next nine weeks and would pop back again into the top 10 during the months of September and October. It would become the eighth highest grossing movie domestically here in the United States. The number one movie, of course, was E.T. the Extraterrestrial, which we have also discussed on this podcast. Moving on to reviews. When growing up in the early 80s, we would tune in weekly to watch sneak previews with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert to hear their latest reviews of upcoming releases. Their review of Poltergeist was split. Roger found the movie to be a good summer thriller with good special effects. Gene found the story to be unconvincing and not scary at all. 
They both agreed that the film probably shouldn't be rated PG. Probably agree with that assessment too. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes gave it a tomato meter score of 87%, and it has an IMDb rating of 7.3. So that takes us to additional thoughts and questions. What are some additional thoughts and questions we have about Poltergeist? Well, I have an additional thought and question for you, Bill Bant. Have you ever witnessed any paranormal activity or a paranormal event? I would have to say no. I can't think of anything. Do you have one? I can't either. I don't believe I have either. I've never stayed like in a haunted hotel or anything like that. Mm-hmm. You know how people do that? Oh, yeah. I don't really have any desire to. <laughs> <laughs> but there's definitely been times when I've felt you get that little chill that goes up your spine sometimes when you're in certain places. It could be for a number of reasons. I feel a presence I haven't felt since something like that. But yeah, I don't think I've ever yeah, witnessed an event of some sort of head. You know, there are times where I really, I, you come home and you're like, hmm, that is that piece of furniture, or that object is not where I left it. <laughs> and right. then you realize, oh, yeah, no, I did move it. Mm-hmm. Or somebody else, you find out somebody else did for some reason. Do you believe in the paranormal? Do you believe in ghosts, etc.? I remember when I read that book, I was kind of believing. Right. But like I said, now because there's just so much hokiness out there, I don't know what to believe anymore. Sure. It's hard to believe anything you see now on uh, on TV. That's for mm-hmm. sure. Social media for that matter. Right? It's yeah. just hard. You're just going to be skeptical. And rightly so. You should be. But I think even before the advent of social media, etc., like I'm a big fan of UFOs. And I think there's probably too much evidence that support you know, their sightings, et cetera, that I can't believe every single one of them is false. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Right. I'm more I, likely I just, to believe there's, there's intelligent on other life than I am in ghosts. Sure. I understand that. I'm open to it. Mm-hmm. I, I think maybe I'm more agnostic when it comes to ghosts than atheist, if that makes any sense. Okay. It's like, I'm open to it. I just haven't seen the proof maybe versus I just don't believe it at all. Right. Anywho. Hey, man. Yes. Here comes. Go for it. You ask ask a question. Have a you know, throw. Oh, I mean, you kind of already asked my question. Was was about the ghosts? But I, I do yeah. initial thought. I just want to say. So I know there here is the classic line from this movie. But I have to say, my favorite line from the movie is when uh, at the very end when Danny gets out of the car and she does the "What's happening? What's happening? What's happening?" Absolutely. We used to love doing that with her when it would come on screen. That was always one of my favorite moments is to mimic her screaming what's happening. Cause that's really her only big moment in the movie. Yeah. It's you know, all set I up just for her to know, do that. It's so funny because I had written down earlier that is she the forgotten sibling in this movie? Because she doesn't have a lot or nor is she given a lot to do in the movie. She has some nice moments, especially that one. Her yelling that is perfection. Like it encapsulates everything we're feeling about this moment as a like a bystander and as an audience member. It's like, what is going on? And she just says it because she shows up like conveniently at the perfect time to hop into the station wagon with them. Like she's coming back from her neighbors, I guess, or, or something like that. Boyfriends, no boyfriends, because she's got the nice hickey on there on her neck. Oh, okay, good. God, oh, wow, good eye, Bill. Great moment. But I even thought that would be a cool 
spinoff, like to do a side story or something like that. Sometimes those are my favorite spinoffs for sequels or side stories from a franchise of a, a lesser known character or lesser featured character. What happened to Dana Freeling? You know, she's much older and what, where is she now? And is she still experiencing supernatural events in her life that are somehow connected to what happened? Yeah, because that's the thing. In, in the movie, nothing really happens to her. Right. Robin gets eaten by the tree. Diane gets thrown around the room. I mean, I guess when the beast does the scream, she does take the big brunt of that hit. I mean, you see her like slant. She probably gets knocked unconscious, it looks like. Mm-hmm. But yeah, nothing else really happens to her. Yeah. All right, Bill Bent. Well, hey, there are a lot of paranormal movies out there. You got a favorite, Bill Bant? I'm going to list a few thanks to Ranker.com. Okay. I don't know what's going to beat this, but maybe. Just a few. There's only 100,000 of them. Tell us what your favorite paranormal movie is. Uh, There's the Conjuring franchise. There's The Ring movies. The Exorcist, Insidious, Sinister, The Shining, The Exorcism of Emily Rose, A Nightmare in Elm Street, It Follows, The Others, The Omen, Stir of Echoes, Rosemary's Baby, Carrie, Hereditary, The Cabin in the Woods, Candyman, Paranormal Activity, Jeepers Creepers, The Changeling, from 1980, The Babadook, The Blair Witch Project, or Drag Me to Hell, just to name a few. I mean, there's definitely some fun ones in that list. Like I did enjoy The Conjuring. Yeah, that's a popular favorite for sure. And I get it. And then the spinoff Annabelle movies. I mean, this is the one I grew up with, so nothing's going to beat this one out. Oh, great. Going sticking with Poltergeist. Yeah. It is great. It's Oh, man, this was a lot of fun to rewatch. A, a movie I don't care to return to that really freaked me out was The Ring. Uh, that one really bothered me. There's Sinister really got me. That upset me. I, I don't like to even think about that movie. The Shining's a classic, of course. I'm a Nightmare on Elm Street fan and stuff. Uh, I need to check out some of these other films that I haven't seen. Yeah, Poltergeist, man. This is kind of where it started for me, too, with the paranormal. So great stuff, man. All right. So let's move on to our ratings. So on a scale of one to five headstones, what do you give Poltergeist? I'm giving Poltergeist a solid four out of five headstones, my friend. Yeah, the effects are great. Jerry Goldsmith knocks it out of the park with this score. The music really, really supports this and is a character unto itself. Carol Ann's theme, which is a take on a lullaby and has that children's chorus within it, is wonderful. Watch this movie, ladies and gentlemen, and stick around for the credits so you can hear that theme very clearly and then be extremely creeped out at the very end of the end credits just to hear children's laughter. And it's like this echoing, ghostly kids laughing, and it's just super creepy to round everything out. The score, the performances, Craig T. Nelson, Joe Beth Williams, the kids in this movie, Zelda Rubinstein, what a character. She's wonderful as Tangina. Yeah. It's still scary. It holds up, and it's just really entertaining. So four out of five for me. I think this is maybe four podcasts in a row where I've gone a half up on you. Yeah. So Yeah, I'm giving it a four and a half. It was still a lot of fun to watch. I mean, literally those two scenes with the poltergeist coming down the stairs and then even them communicating with Carol Ann while she's in the house literally was giving me goosebumps and chills that I couldn't believe. That was still going on. I don't know how many times I've seen this movie. 40 years later, 
Um, so the fact that it's still giving me that kind of reaction to it. And it's a, really the first horror movie that I grew up watching over and over again. So it just holds a special place for me. I still, for the most part, I would say 90% of the special effects work great. That family dynamic, really good. And I think that's what helps you buy into the story, even though, you know, we're trying to pick at it a little bit. But four and a half headstones for me. Well-deserved. It's a great movie. All right. So I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please take the time to subscribe, give us a review, and rate us. If you want to reach out, you can email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, movies you want us to cover, or recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook Meta at all80smoviespodcast or tweet us at podcastall80s. Next week concludes our Splatter Cinema Month, and we'll continue our series with The Shining, starring Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, and Danny Lloyd. Have a totally great week, everyone. This house is clean, but not really. They're still here. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world. <laughs>